You're listening to Igbird, a Dare Bone podcast series where I, your host, Christian Holmes, talk to some of the most interesting people around. In season one, I will be talking to some of the most knowledgeable, most well-known, and exciting personalities in the horse racing industry. In episode one, I will be talking to Peter Aiello, the announcer and morning line odds maker at Gulfstream Park in Hallidale Beach, Florida. In our episode, we talked about the results of the Holy Bull Stakes, Peter Aiello's love affair with horse racing, and his thoughts on the future of the horse racing industry. So, sit back and relax and enjoy the conversation. Alrighty, um, we're talking to uh, Peter Aiello, the uh, announcer at Gulfstream Park. So, um, Peter, I guess to start this off, um, you guys just came off of Holy Bowl weekend. How was that for you? Um, it, you know, it was really good. Uh, it was. Uh, it's always interesting to have another big race day the week after the biggest race day of the year. So, you know, you have to kind of muster a little bit of... Uh, Got to go to the reserve tank a little bit sometimes, but uh, the, the Holy Bowl went really well. I was really happy with the call. I got some, uh, I got some good feedback on the call, and uh, uh, the undercard. I had a little fun with Sandy Sterling on Twitter that worked to my advantage. So it was all, it was all good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys were arguing over the speed figures with uh, competitive uh, spirit. I think it was. Am I right? Um, and, uh, yeah, like, really, if you look at any market, not just horse racing, uh, you know, sometimes the line makers are really good at what they do, and sometimes the public just thinks, oh, I got the edge, and it just turns out they don't. Um, but, yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. I thought uh, I was still under the uh, insinuation there was still a different uh, line maker, but congratulations on getting that. That's not that uh, gig. Um, I gotta ask, what's it like having uh, uh, some fans back um, at the track? It was interesting. It was interesting. Uh, you know, there was there was they had they had the uh, 
um, the, the, the apron, the, the rail where, you know, the tracks would stand, they actually had it um, kind of set up so they were almost like the old school, oh, they had four chairs in a cordoned off area, and then people took four chairs at a time that were six feet apart, so I actually kind of like that setup. I think that you know, it would be problematic on a regular scenario because... Uh, we just we need more square footage to allow for something like that to work because you're going to have a lot more people if you open to the general public. But I mean, everything that I that I saw and heard, I mean, it, it went really well. So I'm hoping that uh, that was a good experiment, and then a couple of more days during the season, we can get rolling with fans again. Hmm. Um. Uh. Another question I had when you look at the Holy Doll. What is a lesson that you may have learned as a uh, morning line maker um, coming, uh, I'd say, to the Florida Derby? Great question. Uh, I mean, I know that uh, I had the favorites flip-flopped, and I, I, I did go back and forth on you know, how much money would Prime Factor take off of a huge win for Todd Pletcher versus how much money would, um, would Greatest Honor take off a huge win for Shook McGahey. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's hard to adjust because, you know, every time you think, okay, well, the deciding factor is Pletcher. Well, then they don't, you know, they don't bet Pletcher. The deciding factor is I rather tease. I don't bet rather tease. So I think that um, there again, much like the earlier race, you know, I thought that Greatest Honor probably had an edge on Prime Factor um, just because he had won at two turns and Prime Factor had not. Um but the better saw it a different way. So sometimes I think that the biggest lesson I could learn from it all, to be honest with you, Christian, is just don't overthink it. And if you do overthink it, admit that you overthought it. And the reality is, is that you, you know, for me, again, it's just a philosophical situation. If I miss on the odds, I want to be able to explain to somebody my logic where they can look at that logic and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. So I don't want to expose myself or take a stand on a horse because I have some opinion or I think the betters will have the same opinion as me or, you know, what have you, and then make the argument and then go, you crazy, you're crazy. You know, like I had a debate yesterday with somebody about a race today that I'm curious to see how it'll play out. He, he has a specific opinion that he thinks is the horse that's going to take a large amount of money. And, you know, I have the horse at five to one. He thinks... The horse will go off at three to one. As far as I'm concerned, five to one to three to one. What are we really talking about here? Um, but then the ordinal rankings come in. I have the horse as the fourth choice. He thinks you'll go off the second choice. So you know, I mean, it's you're threading the needle one way or the other. And the one, the one thing I would say metaphorically about about uh, the two jobs that I do on the racetrack. If I was a football player, I would be the kicker and the punter because you never hear about it when they do good. You only hear about it when they do bad. And that's true both of the announcing side of my job and the morning line side. You know, you know, and I shouldn't say that critically because, to be honest, I do get a lot of really good feedback when I do have a good call. But, I, you know, you miss one, you hear about it, no matter if you want to or not. Mm-hmm. That is a very good comparison. Now, I will ask this because I, I kind of had an argument with my buddy as well. Um, do you think Prime Factor is going to benefit, uh, would have benefited from having a two-turn allowance race before coming into the uh, Holy Bowl? Yeah, I mean, I think he would have, to be honest with you, though. He didn't finish up at all in that race. Uh, and I don't necessarily think, I mean, some, you could make the argument that maybe he bounced uh, or he regressed off of his huge debut. Um, but you could all also make the argument that he just doesn't want to go that far, and I think that this is the time of year in horse racing where a lot of trainers are, are taking a shot with running horses that are super fast at a sprint distance and seeing if they can carry that speed, you know, farther farther distance around the ground or two turns or what have you, because everyone's going to get derby fever and they want to try to get to the first Saturday day. Um, I get that, and I'm fine with that, but at the same time, once you do, this is just me. And I'm just Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking this. Once you try it, if it doesn't work, don't don't take the sheen and the shine off the horse as a world class sprinter 
by continuing to try something that he does not excel at. Find what they're good at and go on with it. There are plenty of very nice, graded, uh, purse-filled sprint races. So, you know, I, I, I would like to think that in his prime and no, uh, you know, everything everything the way it is, to me right now, he looks like a deadly one-turn mile-type horse. Or he'll get a mile as long as there's not a second turn involved and, you know, he'll have that high cruising speed and, and just, you know, grind everybody down on the top end. So that's, that's my prediction in February of 2021 and February of 2022. We could be looking back laughing at this. I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I uh, really like the uh, distance. I thought he would get the distance just based on the damn side of uh, his pedigree. But uh, then again... Like you say, you know, trainers are taking shots. Speaking of the first Saturday in May, uh, the Kentucky Derby, of course, uh, who's a horse that you really like to win it right now, if you do have one at all? I honestly don't have one. I mean, uh, I'm the world's worst when it comes to the Kentucky Derby and picking a horse that, that is a good horse for that race anyway. But to try to do that in February is is... I mean, just, it would be like asking me who I think is going to win the 2022 Super Bowl or the 2021 World Series. You know, it's, you're just so far out. You do have, you know, some stats and some opinions to go on. But um, if you force me, if you put me at gunpoint and uh, force me to say who was the most impressive winner that I've seen so far at Goldstream, it's a three-year-old that would, you know, have the potential to go long. I would have to say the horse that ran on uh, on Pegasus Day for Brendan Walsh for Godolphin that won by 800. Uh, and then Bill Mott had a really nice horse that won earlier in the beat as well. So I, I should know both of their names. I don't know either of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's always, there's always that horse that we haven't seen yet, too, that, that maybe, you know, comes along and is the next superstar. I mean, just look at... Just look at the career of Justify and how much he did over a short term, short period of time just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. The first uh, uh, racehorse since uh, Apollo to not race in his two-year-old year and only race in his three-year-old year and win the Triple Crown. So you, you are definitely right on that one. Um, now, this is more of a personal question. Now you know you as Peter Aiello, the announcer at Gulfstream Park and now the morning line maker, but fans may not know Peter Aiello, the person. Uh, what makes you, you? What makes you tick? Well, that's a great question. Um, I try to, I try to, uh, I try to let the public in on a little bit of Peter Aiello, the person. And I think that my goal is to really, at least as it relates to social media and interacting with our fans, is to just make them understand that I'm a fan first. And I'm just another guy that, that loves the game as much as they do. What you know, whether you're talking about handicapping a race or betting a race or watching a race or getting excited about a race, I mean, it's just an extension of me as a person, what I get to do for a living. And I'm so so lucky to get to do that. And I know I know that, and I'm aware of that. And I try to stay humble. And, and uh, you know, I'm a guy that grew up in Florida that used to go to all three Florida tracks. Now there's only one. Uh, but I never really thought that getting to work at any of the three was really an attainable goal. It, sound, it sounded like such a lofty thing to, you know, again, I, I can make the baseball analogy to to go and watch the major leaguers play and love to play baseball. You know, at some point, do you honestly believe that you're good enough to be a major league baseball player, or do you just love baseball so much that you don't care if you spend your whole career in the minor leagues? And I was that guy. I I didn't know. I didn't know how good I was going to be or if I was as good as I wanted to be or, to be honest with you, if I'm as good as I can be. I don't know the answers to those questions, but I'm always trying to find out. Um, now, on a personal side, you know, I'm a guy that, much like with the extension of my personality at work, I'm a very passionate individual. I don't like to, uh, I don't like to start a project and not finish it. Um, and whatever I'm doing, whether it's, you know, arguing, about a morning line or playing, you know, playing badminton, which is something I enjoy that people laugh about. They can't. That's all right. Uh, I'm super competitive, and uh, 
I, I gravitate towards people that are super competitive and driven like myself. And, uh, you know, I think that the more passionate you are about something, the luckier you are in life because there's a lot of people that search for a lot longer than I had to to find something that they enjoy and can really say and enhances their life experience. And that's not always something that you get to do as a career. So I'm lucky on so many levels as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who who has been your biggest inspiration throughout your life? Inspiration. Interesting. That's a little bit different than, you know, looking up to or mentoring. Um, I can tell you that it's probably changed over the course of a few years. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I was a huge baseball fan, and um, my favorite baseball player growing up was the center fielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Brett Butler. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, growing up in Florida, we had so many uh, so many South Florida spring training clubs that came down this way that I actually got to uh, to talk to him, and uh, he was you know unbelievably nice and good with his time, and he told me something that I always is, uh, I always keep in the back of my mind, and as a matter of fact, I just used it on somebody two days ago, but he, you know, he said that if you, if you say that you can't do something, you will be right 100% of the time, but you would have never done anything. If you say that you can't do something, your percentage is going to go down, but your achievements are going to go up, and you're going to be a lot more successful in life. Um, so I'm all about trying to figure out, you know, looking at a problem and trying to conquer it. And, you know, uh, you know, my mother was the type of person that would, uh, would get knocked down and get up, not because she wanted to get up, but just because you said she couldn't. So, you know, that's a motivation. Um, the most important person of my life and the foundation for me as a human being, whether it's the professional human being or the personal human being was, um, my mother's stepfather who, not to go off on a tangent, but I didn't realize he had was not a blood relative of mine until he passed away, but he was by far and away the most important person in my life. He passed away when I was 10 years old. So just putting that in context, if you can imagine how much somebody must mean to you to really be the foundation of who you are as a human being, and he died when you were 10, that means that he made a pretty darn powerful impression on you when you were in your formative years. So, you know, I, I've... Uh, just like anybody in life, you have ups and downs, and you have uh, people who come into your life and give you kind of give you a reality check. And uh, I've, I've I've been fortunate enough to, to be in that scenario where you, know, you you your mind may be in a little bit of a darker place, and then somebody takes a personal interest in you when they don't have to, and say, "Hey, listen, kid, you got way too much talent and way too much potential to be this bitter or jaded. Cut it out." And that, that happened to me in the summer of 2000 and, uh, 2007, and that was the summer that I worked in Canada and Alberta, and uh, if the gentleman uh, hears this interview, he's, I've already told him 800 times what an impression he had on me, but now this is 801. Well, uh, like, first off, condolences, uh, obviously. It's, uh, obviously, it's very nice to have people like that in your life. Um, uh, the if they can leave an impression on you, if they could, uh, you know, will you forward, that's the most you can ever ask for. It's sometimes the greatest gift that somebody can give you. Um, uh, and you were talking about your childhood and how you then to basically all the tracks and for the three tracks. How did you get into racing? Like, do you remember when you first started watching racing or going to the races? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the first, the first vivid memory I have was when I was three, going to uh, Hialeah, and I believe it was Thanksgiving. I think that was the year. It was either three or four. Whatever year that they raced on Thanksgiving, heads up against Calder, was the year that I'm talking about. And uh, we went down for Thanksgiving, and uh, we went. My grandmother, my grandfather, me, and my dad. And honestly, one way or the other, I don't know if my mom was there. Was there? I don't know why she wouldn't have been. But uh, my sister wasn't born yet, and uh, we went to the gift shop. My grandmother took me to the gift shop, and I got a pink jockey suit out of the gift shop, and, and uh, ran around like a kid in a candy store, enjoying 
enjoying the races, and that was my, uh, 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 that was, uh, you know, my first experience. I can remember going to Calder and uh, being a big fan of the jockey Michael Lee. That was my first uh, handicapping angle. I don't know how old I was. I'll say seven or eight. But I, you know, I, I, even at that point, I understood that there were certain competitors that were better than other competitors, and uh, Michael Lee was my man. And at that point, I was betting two dollars to show on on horses. That was my wagering strategy and my wagering bankroll. But uh, uh, Michael Lee was my go-to guy, so I pretty much just bet two dollars to show on any horse that Michael Lee rode. Uh, and then it morphed into uh, I was at the old Gulfstream when I first. Uh, when I first truly remember trying to handicap a race on my own, I was at the old Gulfstream, and I uh, was at a lounge race on the turf, and Richard Migliori was riding the six horse, and his name was Rebridled. Mm-hmm. I remember telling my dad, I want to bet Rebridled to win. And uh, he said, he looked at the form, and he said, you know, you know, this horse really doesn't have much of a chance. Why don't we bet him to place instead? And you, you can predict the end of that story. Rebridled won. Uh, he was somewhere in the 30 to 35 to one range. And, uh, that was really like, that was what I, they set the hook as far as the horse racing industry on me is, uh, what, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds like a good story. Uh, you remind me a lot of, uh, around here, there's a, uh, driver for standard bread that named Trevor Henry. And, uh, I remember going to the races when I was a young guy like five, six years old, Trevor's riding a horse. Um, him or either Brad Richardson, and you, you knew where my money was going. Um, at least it wasn't my money at the time, but you knew where the money was going. Um, so um, you were talking yeah, about... A... But it wasn't my money either. <laughs> <laughs> good point, good point, eh? Um, uh, man. And that, like, you know, like, just the hook of... Winning, the right, that hooked me in, and, like, I think that hooked everybody in. Um, you were talking about a favorite jockey. Um, did you have a favorite horse, or do you have a favorite horse all time? Uh, I have a list of them. I could probably give you the top five. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that most of them were probably not horses that anybody's ever heard of. I mean, I was always... And I still am this way. I, I gravitate towards the blue-collar horses. Um, you know, the horses that run day in and day out. They can kind of really follow their careers. And always kind of pulled for the underdogs that way. So I have to say that uh, there was a horse named Sunfighter. And uh, he's probably the only horse I ever cried over. So he's got to be up near the list as far as my top favorites. He, uh, he, he, he broke down during uh, a race at Gulfstream, and uh, Vic Stauffer was the announcer at the time, and actually, I've never talked to Vic about this, but uh, I don't need to, because Vic got, got, kind of got choked up in the call, too, because he just was a cool old horse. He would uh, he would run with his head down and just kind of like, uh, kind of like want to beat you. Uh, there was another horse uh, that ended up running and winning as a 13-year-old. His name was The Issue is Power, and I was a huge fan of his as well. Um, I always used to say that you could put a 115 pound anvil on his back and as long as it didn't fall off he didn't need any jockey he knew what he needed to do um, so those are those are two horses that were you know that had come to mind uh, probably the best horse that, that I liked uh, back in the day I guess you could say in South Florida was a horse named Ycappy. Uh he was awesome he ended up getting sold and going the race in Saudi Arabia, but he was ridiculously cool. He, he would win on dirt, he would win on turf, he would win on slop, he would win on fast. You know, it didn't matter. Just put him in, and he was good to go. Um, he ended up being a great at stakes winner, but again, not a national name. I was very much a regional. You know, I was a regional fan, Christian. So I, 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 I gravitated towards the, the regional stars. Um, there was a you know a mare named Chispisky that I used to love that. Uh, Ron Spatz trained her, and I tease Ron all the time now that I'm the announcer at Gulfstream, you know, that anytime he gets a horse that's any good, you know, how, how is she, how is he compared to Chismiski? Because, uh, you know, she was a great at stakes winner in Florida. So 
lot of, lot of local horses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I don't blame you. I think those are the best stories come out of horse racing. And uh, a lot of people I've been talking to for my thesis say that it's all about the stories uh, for some of these people uh, and the horses. And yeah, it, it just draws you into the sport. Um, was it always your plan to be an announcer, uh, whether it was for horse racing or otherwise? Or did you have like some sort of a, like a de- another career path that you wanted to follow? Well, for me, I can say that it was always calling races and being a horse racing announcer that I wanted to do now. You know, I had other forces acting on me when I was younger, so I did a, uh, a pretty intensive pre-law program when I was in high school, um, but by the time I was a sophomore in high school, it was horse racing or bust for me, and as far as what did I want to do when I worked as an uh, employee of the horse racing industry, the answer to that question was always be an announcer. I've done other things, I enjoy doing other things, I can do other things, but in terms of what my goal was, it was always to call races. Did you ever have a, a mentor uh, that was an announcer or somebody in the horse racing industry that urged you along uh, or helped you get a job here and there? Uh, I had a lot of them, actually. I, and uh, most of them are, are still close friends of mine. Um, that's one thing that I think about maybe too much almost, but just how much help I've had along the way and how many people were were gracious with their time and gracious with the opportunities that they gave me. But the guy that I have to say was my mentor was Luke Kripos, who was the uh, announcer at Church Paradise. He worked at Hollywood Park, and uh, he also worked at Churchill Downs until he passed away. Uh, I met Luke when I was a freshman in college at the University of Arizona, and um he helped get my career rolling. He got me the opportunity to call two races uh, at Rolito Park in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, the first race I ever called was a half a mile maiden race uh, for a thousand dollar purse. Um, but he got me the job uh, on the Arizona County Fair circuit, so I was the voice of the Arizona County Fairs, which uh, unfortunately there's there's not many of them anymore. I think there's only one that races on a regular basis anymore, but. Uh, I love that. I got paid zero. I got paid an experience, um, which I wouldn't trade that for the world. That was a great experience and uh, still have some friends that uh, I met on that circuit. So uh, he started me there. And then what he really did was he really, you know, he, he molded me through the formative years of my race calling career, both on the microphone and off. He really wasn't, he wasn't the type of guy to call you and critique a race call. I can never remember him doing that ever. Um, but he was the type of guy to give you the philosophy for what your race call should should be and what it should not be. You know, he wasn't a micromanager. He let you, you know, do your thing. And then if you made a mistake, he'd tell you. Or you know, if you were if you were going in a direction that he didn't want you to go, he you know kind of re- redirect you. But the one thing that he told me that he was adamant about was that he didn't want me to try to sound like him, uh, just because you know that I was his you know apprentice, so to speak. He didn't want uh, he didn't want my style to resemble his. He wanted my style to be my own, and that was something that he taught me. And said, you know, listen, if you if you steal a line from one guy ten times, then people are going to say that you sound like that guy. But if you steal a line, one line from 10 different guys, people can't say that you sound anything more like than yourself because that blend of vocabulary and delivery um, makes you you and it's unique to you. That was something that I've really worked towards and uh, I thank him for everything that he did for me. He got me my first job in the industry as a, you know, as a, as a really as an announcer. I mean, the, the other stuff was kind of spring training so to speak but uh he got me the job in cincinnati at river downs which was the first full-time paid announcing job i had in the industry and uh, that was uh that was in the summer of 2008 and he passed away in the summer of 2008 so uh, uh i was kind of like uh i was the last samurai to go through his school so to speak mm-hmm 
Yeah, he sounds like a wonderful person. And uh, I believe Turf Paradise had a stakes race named after him uh, last yep, week. last week. Last week, you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he is a, uh, he sounds like a very uh, important individual in your life. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, what's it like to call a race? Like, we've been talking about uh, announcing for pretty well the entire uh, duration of the interview. What's it like to call a race when you're in the booth? Uh, that's a complicated question. Uh, it's exhilarating. Uh, depending on the scenario, it can be very intimidating. Uh, um, the one thing that I don't think the general public understands or can truly appreciate is how mentally exhausting it can be. Um, the only metaphor or the only comparison that I can make that may resemble it is imagine cramming for a midterm and taking eight to ten midterms back to back to back to back five days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's really the mental. Now, granted, I don't, I don't struggle as much with the preparation as I did when I first started because I've been doing it so long now that it's somewhat natural to me. But nevertheless, it still takes a giant mental toll on you. Uh, and then the bigger days, that's magnified even more because there's, you know, then you feel exterior pressure that, you know, like we're recording this on a Wednesday. I'm not so much worried about my cold of the seventh race on a Wednesday as much as I would be the Holy Bowl, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you know something, to be honest, I'd love to, I'd love to like sit down with a psychologist or, or, a, uh, or somebody who can analyze the, the inner workings of the brain as far as that goes, because I'd like to wonder if you took uh, my seventh race calls on a Wednesday throughout my career and compared them to my big race calls on a Saturday, whether it was at River Downs or Hialeah or Gulfstream or wherever I was, and looked if you could if you could make some sort of deduction or comparison. Like, do I sound more focused? Do I sound more nervous? Do I sound more relaxed? Or do I sound, you know, more uh, lackadaisical? Like, what? Would, it's a very interesting dynamic. Like, the, the, the mental dynamic of announcing a race and being an announcer is something that that I actually am intrigued by, too, because, uh, you know, it's uh, you have to be laser-focused when you're doing it. I don't know if that answers your question. I might have just been rambling for five minutes, but, but uh, <laughs> that's, just, that's as much as I can, can go for now. I can always follow up. Oh, yeah. No, no worries. That, I know that was an open-ended question, and it was, <laughs> I expected an open-ended answer. Um, that was very good. Don't ever apologize. You're doing great. Um, now, this is more like uh, talking about the state of the horse racing industry. Uh, from your perspective as a track announcer, um, a morning line maker, and a horse player, what's your current view of the horse racing industry's um, uh, in terms of its uh, long-term future? Well, I think that uh, you, you and I had mentioned, you had mentioned that that question was coming a little bit when, uh, when we talked originally about setting up this interview and uh, it got me thinking about it. I, I did a piece for the Pollock Report it's got to have been six or seven years ago now. Uh, Natalie Nevels, who was Natalie Volksman, who's won like 8,000 Eclipse Awards between now and then, she, she and I did an interview that was pretty much asking those same questions. And I don't know that my answers would have changed as much and in fact, if I went back and I might, I might do this when we hang up and pull that article up, to see how right or wrong I was, but one of the things I think that the industry, at least in the United States, and I will say this, from my, my limited experience in Canada, at least in Alberta, it's not such a problem in Canada as it is in the U.S., is that we have so many competing interests, and you have so, so many entities that are trying for the same piece of the pie, and that pie continues to get smaller and smaller. Now, it's still a healthy pie. I'm not a doomsday guy that, you know, says that the industry is doomed or whatever. But at the same time, if, if, if you're fighting for the same market share and that market share is finite, is that really a long-term solution to growth? I don't know how that's a long-term solution to growth. I think that we need to be working towards 
you know, and again, and that's complicated because there's also so many different facets of the industry. So, you know, to talk about it in a, you know, a mile high scenario is tough because you lose the nuance of whatever area of the industry you're talking about. But um, I think we need to work on whatever segment or nuance of the industry we're talking about. I think we need to work on working with each other as opposed to working against each other. And I think that there's a misconception among some of the high brass that if you work with somebody else, that somehow diminishes your chance to garner the market share. And I just don't see that, especially in the digital age and where a lot of the money is ADW, you know, ADW generated. I don't see how cross promotion and co-promotion are a bad thing. I didn't see it 10 years ago and I certainly don't see it now. Um, so that, that's, that's one thing I think that, and I also think that we need to understand and appreciate the different, um, the different engines economically that go through the industry. I mean, there's some very powerful economic engines that drive the industry, but by the same token, those economic engines have very nuanced parts. And if one of those parts is not firing on all cylinders, so to speak, then that brings down the entire industry. So I think think that we need to, I think we need to be a little bit more open-minded towards the greater good and the greater cause and what are things that we can improve on to make the industry healthier. And now healthy in itself is a nuanced term, but healthier um, so we don't have to have these conversations. That being said, and I know I'm on a tangent now, one thing I think that is 100% accurate is that horse racing always is thinking. Now, I don't know if that necessarily translates to, translates to innovation, uh, innovation, excuse me, innovation and how much innovation we should have. But the one thing about it is, is if you look 30, 40 years ago, there, are, there were people in the industry asking the same questions as we are now. So if you're always consistently asking those questions and you have people that are working within your industry that are always asking those questions, I feel like you're in a much better position to work weather the storm than if you just rest on your laurels. And so that's why I don't necessarily mind the doomsday arguments because it forces people who are not thinking about it on those contexts to at least appreciate that point of view. Uh, just from a, uh, when I've been researching and whatnot um, uh, for this thesis of mine, uh, I was focusing more on the dollars wagered on uh, horse racing and handle and whatnot, and how it differs from state to state, province to province. Um, uh, it seems like the numbers go up, down, up, down. Um, and most of these articles I'll read, they'll say because, oh, well, we can't attract new people to the sport, or we're having a hard time. Um, how would you go about attracting new people to the sport, whether it's uh, getting them a wager or watching a race on a Saturday. Okay, so I have a very, I have a very strong opinion on this. This is again something that I've had a strong opinion on since I can remember. You know, being being involved in the industry or wanting to be involved in the industry. And again, I don't necessarily think the industry talks to the right people about this. Mm -hmm. So, in my opinion. Follow this logic. In my opinion, you have, by and large, two segments of individuals. You have individuals that are fans of the industry because they love the pageantry and the storytelling and the competitive nature of horses. So they're fans of the animal, right? Mm -hmm. And we love those people, and we want those people. And those are people that mainstream marketing can help cultivate. Okay? I believe that it is possible to introduce somebody through an amazing story to our industry and have them become a fan of our industry because they get wrapped up in the pageantry and the elegance and the competitiveness of the racehorse and the race, horse racing business. Now, that being said, that doesn't move the needle because the economic engine that fuels our industry does not get fueled by those fans. We're glad we have them. We want to have them. We need more of them, right? Mm -hmm. But 
the reality of the situation is, is if you don't generate revenue through wagering on the races, then nobody is going to get to watch the races because they will not exist. So then the question should be, and the narrative should be, how do we cultivate wagering fans? Okay. Now, I think the industry is well aware that that is the question to ask. Now, what I think, and this is somewhat of a scoop because I don't try, I don't really like to talk about it because you, know, you worry about coming across as arrogant or, or misinformed. But why? Well, what I think is, is I don't think the industry does a good job in understanding the psychographics behind what makes a horse player a horse player. And for example to that, I think that there were far too many resources put forward to try to convert slot machine players because they were being brought onto your property to horse racing players. Well, I got news for you. I've read a number of studies from a lot of very good academic institutions that simply put, the studies have been done, the crossover between a casino gambler and a horse racing gambler is very, very small because the psychology behind enjoying that type of gambling is different. So that being said, the poker player and the horse racing individual have a much tighter bond psychologically in terms of what fuels their um, love and interest and action, so to speak, in the industry. But I think we need to be focusing on psychographics more more than demographics. I think we need to be focusing on who can we target that we have not targeted that enjoys betting, but enjoys betting because they're betting against other people or because they enjoy putting a stake on their opinion that has been formulated through statistics. And I think one way or the other, we're kind of being force-fed some of the folks now that sports betting is legal in a year-round national audience for the U.S. I mean, granted, the states are still working that out. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that somebody who enjoys fantasy football is far more likely to enjoy betting on horse racing than pulling a slot machine. And I think that apps like Stable Duel picked up on that. They said, all right, wait a minute. we got all these horse racing fans that are going to play fantasy football anyway. So why don't we take, now granted it's a small audience, but why don't we take these horse racing fans that already exist and give them a platform about horse racing that resembles fantasy football, something they're doing anyway, but something that is different from what they have been doing in the paramutual sector. So, you know, that's the type of thing that I think, you know, and then the question becomes for, or somebody like that, can you cultivate enough fantasy football fans to transfer or at least cross-promote and enjoy horse racing with that type of platform, a platform that they are more familiar with because they already gamble on fantasy football? Is that possible? I think so. Will it happen long-term? I don't think it, I think it's too soon to tell. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, I was reading a study. Um, I forgive me for not knowing the institution that did it, but um, they were basically stating that um, if uh, horse racing wanted to attract like a broad demographic, just to watch the sport, not to invest, but to watch the sport, they gotta focus on the romanticism of it, uh, like you were saying, the pageantry, because the uh, the people that like the horses. Um, do you think long term that uh, that will lead to, I guess, horse racing staying mainstream, being able to stay in the news, per se? Uh, because it seems like I've talked to a couple editors uh, um, from around the country, and they're like, it, it's harder and harder to get horse racing into the paper. Uh, it, it, do you think if they... You know, like, let's say you have a horse like, um, 
There's one uh, from Woodbine called Pink Moise, and he's like uh, uh, a really, really good stakes horse, but it's just the, the uh, story of how his career started, and it keeps going and will keep going for at least another season by the sounds of it. Do you think those types of stories can keep horse racing relevant in that sense? I think that they need to. I think that I think that, but again, you're gonna you're hitting all the right notes to get me off on tangents. I think the problem is, the problem is finding platforms to tell those stories, and I think that's one thing that you know the increasing amount of podcasts that the industry is creating. You know, those are great because you're getting stories that otherwise would not have been told that are now being told. But the problem is no different than the problem of marketing the sport nationally and globally is that if you're bringing a knife to a gunfight when it comes to resources, when it comes to resources, if you, let me, let me back up a bit. If you have an idea, right? Mm-hmm. And you have, let's say, let's say just for the sake of argument, stable duel. Cause that's, you know, that's kind of a new and innovative and it's, seems to be gathering a lot of momentum, at least on the horse racing Twitter side of the world. Yeah. If you didn't have the resources behind facilitating that idea, then it would have never got off the ground. And that's one of the things that frustrates me about the industry, because sometimes we have a really good idea, or we have a really good story, or we have a really good long-range plan, and we just don't have the resources to execute it on a level that people will be able to tell us whether it's good or bad. In other words, the industry, just because of our, you know, our contracting nature and the fact that there are so many other entertainment options, you, you really have to compete hard for advertising and for interest and for, you know, um, your, you know, your point about the press staying relevant, convincing people that this story is worth their time to hear. And I don't think the industry has any problem in once they hear the story, people going, oh yeah, that is an awesome story, I'm happy to print that. I think the problem is, is that there's so much competition for getting somebody's ear that has enough stroke within the market to blast that out to the masses, if that makes any sense. I, yeah. think that, I think that reach is a bigger issue, not content. We have great content, but we need distribution and we need reach behind it. How would you go about getting reach? Um, you speak about the reach is what you need. just curious to know, uh, because it is uh, something that you hear a lot of, whether you read the Pollock Report, the Blood Horse, um, you know, U.S. Thoroughbred Daily, how would you go about getting the reach? Well, <laughs> now we're getting into the idea of, uh, you know, I have the I have the right questions to ask, but I don't always have the right answers for the questions that I think should be asked. Um, I don't know how you do that. I think that I think a certain segment of it has to be um, has to be grassroots. I think that a lot of times, if you look, especially on a regional level. A lot of those stories get traction because they're grassroots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think social media has a lot to do with it, and I think that I mean, look at—I can give you a great example, personal great example of what I'm talking about. Fallen Leaf, the filly that is infamous now in the horse racing world, and now mm-hmm. infamous on a national level, right? Mm-hmm. Because she jumped the rail and unseated the rider five steps before the finish after being seven in front and a sure winner. Mm-hmm. And my call of, there we go with the antics, some would argue, took it to the next level. I appreciate that they think that. But how did we get, how did we get, as Goldstream Park, how did we get um, Scott Van Pelt and Kenny Maine to take notice that that happened? Were Scott Van Pelt and Kenny Maine watching Gulfstream on the lonely Thursday? Did that happen? Nope. 
it happened because enough people on social media were passionate enough to share with those individuals, hey, mm-hmm. you guys have a segment called Bad Beats? Check out this. Mm-hmm. And then they looked at it, and again, to the point of not having problems with the stories, they looked at it and they went, wow, this is a crazy sick beat. And they came down and they did a profile, and we did a story. I was with Kenny at Calder. We were at Gulfstream. We talked to the jockey, the trainer, um, myself, and, you know, a guy that bet some money on the horse. And, you know, that's mainstream exposure. But that's not mainstream exposure because somebody won a bunch of money or because somebody, you know, uh, some, like, ridiculous story. That's just racing. That was an organic experience. That's something that happened that people in the industry may have not thought, well, that's national news. But when it got in front of the right people, it became something that the general public was interested in. I think we just need to look for that and then make the fan. This is another, again, you're, Christian, you're hitting all the right notes today. You're getting me off on all these tangents. Yeah, that's my I job. That, I think that it's important. I think it's vitally important for our industry to make the fans feel like they're part of the process. Because the reality is, going back to my other point about unity and the unified front, if the fans can market the sport for you, you're in so much better shape than if you have to spend money to market the sport yourself. Why can't we do both? Why can't we let the fans feel like they're part of the process? I mean, look at it from a standpoint of, of, of mainstream celebrities, right? Mm-hmm. Rick Pitino, he owns a bunch of horses. He's interested in horse racing. He goes out and tells all the people in the basketball world how much he likes horse racing. Then enter uh, uh, Gronkowski, for example. Ron Gronkowski didn't know horse racing from a hole in the wall. All of a sudden, somebody alerted him to the fact that there's a racehorse named after him, and he's all about it. Steve Largent, two weeks ago, they did it on the NBC broadcast. They didn't, he didn't know there was a really good racehorse named after him. Now he's all, all about it. So, it's just, horse racing doesn't, this is, again, I'm biased because I'm passionate about it and you can hear the passion in my voice as I'm talking about this. Horse racing will sell itself as long as you put it in a position to be successful. Horse racing will sell itself. The stories will sell themselves, but don't get in the way. Let the fans help you. Use the fans as part of your resource toolkit. You know, make them feel valued. Because, and, and I did, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I'll ask you the same question I asked that person. Mm-hmm. If you were doing your thesis on hockey, and you wanted to have, and forgive me if this is incorrect, because I'm not. The hockey guy, but the, who is who is? Let me let me just ask you that. Who is the premier voice of NHL hockey? Uh, you could basically say Doc Emmerich, maybe, or you could. Doc Emmerich was the example I was going to use. Do you <laughs> think? Do you think if you sent a message to Doc Emmerich and say, "Hi, my name is Christian. I'm from Ontario. I'm doing a thesis on hockey. I'd love you to come and interview on my." podcast. A, do you think he would answer you? B, do you think he would answer you in real time? And C, what do you think he would say? Um, okay. So, he, he probably wouldn't answer me unless I, you know, pulled all the strings. Wouldn't be in real time. And if he did do it, it would probably be something that, you know, is on the back part of the schedule. I'm not saying that uh, he wouldn't do it, but it's just a matter of getting them right. in the right place, catching them at the right time. And that's and that, and again, that's not an indictment against Doc Emmerich. He's you know he's got a busy schedule. He's doing a lot of things. But therein is a perfect example of what makes racing different from other mainstream sports. Sometimes there's value in not being. I don't want to say not mainstream because I, I don't necessarily believe that horse racing is necessarily not mainstream. But some sometimes there's value in being a close a close community. Sometimes there's value in going to the minor league ballpark, for example, and getting to interact with players that you will never 
get to interact with you if you go to a major league ballpark. They could be the very same player, but they're not going to have the time to do that on that stage. No different than even in the racing world example. If you had called me on Wednesday before Pegasus and asked me to do your podcast, I'm not going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But when you call me, hey, after the Holy Bull, do you have some time for me? Absolutely, I have some time for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's just a small example of, you know, sometimes there are advantages that horse racing has that I don't necessarily think horse racing realizes that they have. This is another drive question. What's your hope for the future of the sport? Now that we talked about all the issues and all the things that are going right, what is your hope for the future of the sport? Very simple. As long as the industry continues to cultivate and create people like myself, like you, and then hopefully we do a good enough job having these conversations both on and off the microphone to make sure that there's that next generation. As long as there are people that are passionate about the industry, whether they're on the track or on the rail, we're going to be fine. But we need to do a job. There's The fans have as much of a role to play in the next generation of fans as the industry itself does. So my challenge to anyone who listens to this and likes horse racing, take your friend to the track, show them the race, teach them how to handicap. They may hate it. They may love it. That's okay. If they don't like it, it's not for them. No problem. But be an ambassador for something that you love And that's true, Christian, in my opinion, no matter what you're talking about, whether it's sports, whether it's uh, business, whether it's eating at a restaurant, be an ambassador for what you enjoy in the hopes that others will enjoy it with you so you can enjoy it anytime you want. You know, even if it's the smaller things, like, you know, you love a restaurant, take somebody there, um, show them the menu. They might not like it, but... The good chance is if you like it and they have the same similar taste buds that you do, they're probably going to like it too. You know, it applies to every aspect in life, and that is a very good example. Um, before I let you go, um, I've been getting a couple questions about this from uh, just more people that are kind of casual voice racing fans. Can you uh, kind of explain what Olderlay City is? Um, the uh, place you talked so fondly about on Twitter. So, an overlay, for those who aren't gamblers, would be when you get paid more than the result indicates that you should. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, if you think that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers will win next Sunday's Super Bowl, and somebody gives you 10 to 1 odds that they won't, and you bet that person and you win, they have given you an overlay. Because at worst, it's a 50-50 proposition. So there's statistical value in what you're gambling on. And that's what I said just kind of off the cuff about the the Stronic 5 bet that we offer with the Stronic Group properties, that routinely, on a regular basis, the bet outpays what the results indicate it should be. So for me, it was, again, in an effort to to create some sort of a grassroots following and not to sound cookie cutter, I said, you know, take a trip to Overlay City with the Stronic 5. And I used the hashtag Overlay City. And I was trying to kind of maybe cheap knockoff of Gabe Pruitt send it in. Because now everybody says hashtag send it in, whether they're talking about something that Gabriel would have to do with it or something that he has no idea what they're talking about. He's created that mantra of, oh, okay, send it in. That means I have to play something. That means there's a carryover somewhere. Just some sort of subconscious subconscious vibe about it. And that was all I was trying to drive with Overlay City because I believe that it's a great bet. And uh, now we can, we just need to get the lyrics right. We're gonna, obviously uh, – we're, uh, we're playing off the Guns N' Roses song, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Paradise City. So now we just have to get the lyrics right for the horse racing world. <laughs> no kidding. 
Um, you mentioned this, and this is my last question. Uh, the Super Bowl is coming up on Sunday, uh, and they have passed for some people who are listening to it. But um, what's your prediction on the Super Bowl? Who do you like, Tampa Bay or uh, Kansas City? I think that I think that the storyline that the storyline of this year's Super Bowl is something that you dream about. The arguably the greatest of all time playing against a guy that has the opportunity to eclipse him as the greatest of all time. I think that if we if we look back 40, 50 years from now, people will still be talking about the Super Bowl because it was Tom Brady against Patrick Mahomes. For me, I think that as much of the crafty veteran logic that usually works for my horse racing world, I just think Kansas City has too many weapons, and they're too adaptable to um, to things going wrong. I just, I, I just, I think that they they are a much more rounded ball club as far as Super Bowl goes because they can adjust on the fly. Or I think that the Buccaneers have arguably as much, if not more, talent, but they're not quite as adaptable. So I think Kansas City gets the job done. Mm-hmm. I'm with you on that 100%. I actually bought in on uh, Kansas City at, uh, I think it was three and a half or three. I'm, uh, don't quote me on that, but I, I really do like Kansas City. Um, well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Um, and uh, I, I look forward to, uh, you know, sharing this on social media. You are a very, uh, very opinionated person with a lot of knowledge, and I'm glad uh, and beyond grateful for you taking the time to share it. And uh, I look forward to maybe talking to you again in the future. Absolutely, stay in touch. Thanks so much for uh, thanks so much, seriously, for giving me a platform to voice my views on topics that I'm not usually asked my opinion about. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know what? You're the right guy to talk to because you're great in the thick of things. You're calling races, making the morning lines. And, like, I would only imagine that you talk to a lot of, like, trainers, jockeys, other analysts that you might see. So, like, your voice is so valuable because, like you're saying, like, you don't always get the platform. And, you know, we always gravitate towards like oh let's go and talk to the big uh jockey like i ride ortiz or a big trainer like bob baffert todd fletcher bill not but they never you know what i mean and there's nothing wrong with that but you never get the opinion of people like you uh, you know that are really you're day to day you're in it yeah i mean i think that um i think that it's important too that you know role to play in the industry and we all have our our specialties and and things that we're good at and things that we're not good at so you know a lot of people will maybe listen to this interview and say stay in your lane pete but uh what they don't know is is that i've been on the other side of the of the uh of the uh the freeway so to speak in the sense that i've worked in management uh, already in my career too so you know there's nothing worse than somebody espousing facts that has no proper frame of reference for what they say. But uh, one thing I can say about this interview, everything that I said to you was based on some sort of experience that I have had or been part of in the industry. So it was not me just rambling on. It was based on stuff that I've experienced and stuff that I've seen. So I feel like I had the proper frame of reference to comment on it. Mm-hmm. 100%. Anyhow, I'll let you go so you can go and uh, call some races and uh, hopefully make a little bit of money. And uh, I'll talk to you in the future, hopefully. Sounds great. You take care. You too. Take Take care. And that concludes my conversation with Peter Aiello. I would like to take this time to thank From the Inside Studios for creating the artwork for this podcast series. From the Inside Studios is a venture run by Matt Ryder, and they are looking to feature you and your craft. FTI Studios has built a huge following of dedicated fans that are always eager to see, read, or hear new content. 
Whether you're a fashion designer, YouTuber, podcaster, artist, musician, or anything else, FTI Studios can ensure that your content will get a live viewing audience. For more information, be sure to follow From the Inside Studios on all their social media platforms. Matt Ryder, the head of the venture, told me that his DMs are always open. Once again, that's From the Inside Studios. This podcast episode was created and edited by Christian Holmes. You can follow him on social media at Holmesy Writes. That's H O L M E S Y W R I T E S. Holmesy Writes. My DMs are all resulting. If you'd like to stay up to date with Peter Aello and what he's doing, you can follow him on Twitter at Announcer Pete. Once again, that's Announcer Pete. Once again, thank you for listening to today's episode. Your support is much appreciated. With all that being said, I bid you farewell. Take care and stay safe. Talk to you next time.